0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Hello! And welcome back everybody to our 19th episode. It is mid-March, marking the one year anniversary of the COVID-19 global pandemic. Infection rates are trending down. More than 10% of the US population has received the vaccine, according to reports. And the NCAA March Madness basketball tournaments are a go. Congratulations to local schools Villanova, Drexel, and Rutgers for getting bids in this year's men's tournament, and particularly to uh, Drexel and Rutgers, whose teams are predicted to make the women's tournaments as well. So things are generally looking up, except for us sullen bagpipers over here who. We'll now go a second year without St. Patrick's Day parades. Pour one out for us. It's literally the one day we actually get appreciated for our particular set of skills. But I must say, I made up for it on New Year's this year. My neighbors all know quite well how good I am at playing Old Lang Syne. I played it many, many times, and uh, they, they let me know at midnight just how well I was doing. I am your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me, as always, is a man of dubious skills himself, Glenn Thomas. Glenn, (laughs) what's the one annual tradition you missed the most in this past year of lockdown?
1: Oh, good question, Rory, and uh, of of those dubious skills, like I say, bagpiping is not one of them, so my hat's (laughs) off to you, and I I, I actually love the bagpipes, and if you manage to outlive me, I've told my wife I want bagpipes at my (laughs) funeral, I'm going to make a note to her after this that... uh, to stay in touch with you no matter where our roads lead. By by all means,
0: by all means. Well, there's a lot of industry uh, events that have occurred in the past month. And you and I sat down and we said, who could we get to come in and talk about everything that's happened? And the top guy on our list, we were able to nail him down for some time to talk to us. Glenn, would you do the honors of uh, introducing our guest this month? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And uh, it's another true pleasure to welcome a great guest to the podcast. And we're joined today by uh, Pat Wood. Pat Wood's been a friend for 20 plus years. Uh, I've known and worked with him in many capacities. He was chair of the Public Utility Commission from 1995 to 2001. That's the chair of the Public Utility Commission of Texas, I should say. Uh, he went on from 2001 to 2005 to be chairman of FERC where uh, he and I worked on a lot of great things uh, during those years. Uh, During that time, he wrestled with small events like the California energy crisis, the Enron collapse, the Northeast blackouts of 2003, and saw our country through uh, some tremendous times uh, managing those issues. He's currently CEO of the Hunt Energy Network. He serves on the board of Sun Power and Quanta, uh, and we are really pleased to welcome him to the show today. Pat Wood, welcome to the GT Power Hour.
2: Well, it's an honor to be on the GT Power Hour and thank you guys for uh for roping me in. It's it's, it's been a year. When I, I was listening to that, I was thinking, gosh, look how much we've missed. But one thing I did not miss this year on the sports front was the orange bowl. My Texas Aggies went down and and dished a nice uh plate of barbecue out to uh North Carolina. And it was <laughs> it was I tell you though, I I brought my family and we got a box. I I really decided to to blow the, the Wood family bank and go for broke. But we got a box in that beautiful stadium in Miami, the Dolphins Stadium. And uh, it was really odd to be in a major bowl like that, which is, you know, certainly something that Aggie was proud to be in. But to have the audience be just 20 percent full, I said, this really is a different world we're in. But you know, you play football, you drink beer, you, you eat the, the overpriced, uh, bar food at the, at the, uh, stadium and you move on. So that was, uh, <laughs> that was my little, uh, attempt to keep it normal. But, uh, yeah, we're missed, we missed a lot. I mean, just not being able to go to baseball games and the basketball games, and most importantly, to football games, I didn't get to go to my Texas a home season this year. I let the tickets uh, put on the shelf, which they gave us the option to do. But anyway, I missed the movie. I saw the list of Oscars coming out today and I, I told Kathleen, I said, what the hell? I don't know any of these movies. <laughs> I've usually probably, I've usually seen 70% of them, but uh, this is a, it's a different year. Good Lord. But uh, I got my second vaccine Pfizer last uh, on Friday, friday and my wife got her first so we're uh we're on the path to normal my three of my older kids all got it at college right off the bat and got through with no problem thank goodness that one of them lost his sense of taste and smell which is quite unusual for about four or five months he got it back we were with them yesterday but he's gotten it back so uh you can get through this thing i got one child who hadn't gotten a vaccine or gotten the disease so we're still protecting him
0: Yeah, everything has been touched and moved by this. And this industry is certainly no different.
2: Well, it's true. You know, I have to say, I was sitting there thinking about that when I had to, you have to wait 15 minutes after you get the vaccine so they make sure you don't pass out and have some bad reaction to it. But Mm -hmm. I was sitting there trying to, in my best bipartisan way, be grateful. And I thought, you know, people aren't giving Trump credit for getting that warp speed up and going but to think you could have a disease that does this across the world and then have a vaccine for it available within right at a year after we all hunkered down and then you know tip my hat to the Biden team coming in and picking up the ball and then and then improving the game dramatically mm-hmm. you know getting the, the the getting it spread out getting organized hubs I'm in a major city in Houston obviously it's probably pretty medical already but you know getting getting all that up and going and dealing with the financial aspects for people that have lost their jobs through the stimulus number, stimulus bills. Of course, our kids are going to pay that price, but you know, they benefit. Uh, So it's kind of like when our age, Glenn, when we were watching Reagan invest double down on defense spending back in the eighties, that it's probably worth paying that off over time because it has created a world that's a lot more stable than it could have been with the cold war continuing. So yeah, a lot of deep thoughts here this week, but uh, just one of gratefulness that we've got an innovative country and uh, innovative uh, medical profession that really is doing their job and keeping their eye on the ball. So um, in the midst of Bloom, there's a, there's some sparks of hope that keep us going. And that certainly is one for me is this quality medical profession that's done such a heroic job this year.
0: Yep. Yeah, s- same Thanks. up here. Well, Pat, uh, let's let's jump in. Let's let's start with the obvious issue that's on the mind of everyone in around or observing this power industry. You know, we just reviewed your your Texas bonafides. You've, you've obviously spent a lot of time there. You guys had three severe winter storms that swept across the country. Uh, last month in in February, from the 10th to the 20th, leaving more than 4.5 million electricity customers in your state alone without power, some for days. That confluence of events has subsequently been identified as the cause of a number of deaths. Republican Governor Greg Abbott initially blamed those outages on frozen wind turbines, but it soon became apparent that the issues were much larger and much more complicated, highlighting major infrastructure and market structure questions. What, in your opinion, is the reason or reasons that Texas experienced the tragic mid-February electricity shortages?
2: Well, the number one reason is the intensity of this storm. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here talking to you guys, looking out the window at my team of yard men. my, my, My yard guy brought about six men with him to basically tear out my entire garden uh Mm. i've never had to do that in the two decades i've lived in this town and
0: really really
2: yeah it's uh i've got some azaleas that are trying to bloom but i think uh once they bloom we're gonna let them go too but it's it was a tough storm it uh, according to meteorologists who testified at the texas legislature last month it was the third most intense winter storm since we've been keeping weather in Texas. And the worst one was 1890. The, the second worst was 1989, which I do remember. And then this one, it was, uh, it, it all 254 counties were under winter storm warning. Or, I'm sorry, winter storm watch, which means it's happening right now. So <laughs> be careful. Um, it was uh, the, the length of the number of days that we were below zero was a record. And then the, the depth of the temperature. So the, so in geographic breadth and time breadth and in uh, the number that it went down to across the state, it was intense. But that doesn't let us off the hook. There were some things our system was not weatherized for. Um, we you know, prepare for summer down here. Our summers are, can get pretty intense, which we had back in 19, for example but we have had winter events in the past. So it's not like this was a surprise. This one was just, I I think, surprise in the intensity of it.
0: Let let me follow up on that for a second. You know, you were talking about the weatherization and you know, there is a bit of a trade-off that has to go in there, right? I mean, you can't be prepared for, you do have very hot summers and, and uh, in the, in the Northeast here, that it's probably a little bit more of the opposite. Well, we're prepared for cold weather and we'd have heat in the summer, but we're not necessarily anticipating blistering heat. How do you balance that trade-off between the investment and the preparedness?
2: Great question, Roy. I, I you know, I was chairman of Dynergy for a while and we owned some power plants up there all over the Northeast but in suburban Philadelphia and I remember that was probably when the, before we merged with Vistra uh, in 2018, I remember going up there to to Philly in 17 and you know, the plants inside, they're, they're inside a building. So you <laughs> that works great for winter mm-hmm. protection as you keep some envelope of warmth around your facility and you're able to generate power and keep the lights on throughout the whole region. Uh, but that if we did that fix down here for winter, that would turn around and totally kick us in August when mm-hmm. you've got a hot building that's impossible to air condition that's that big. I mean, you can obviously keep some sort of air moving around, but you know, the same fixes that work in the winter would absolutely, you know, kick you hard in the summer. And so that's a good example of one. Um, But there are some things you can do, just general insulation. I mean, we think about an igloo ice cooler, it can keep things hot, and it can keep things cold. So just the main thing is you keep it what you want it to stay, and then that could work. So that sort of insulation of pipes and of external infrastructure, can be done in a way that doesn't make it a summarization problem um but you know that that's going to be really the root cause analysis that's going on now y'all is is what i'm most interested in and i'm trying to honestly keep my powder dry and as far as jumping out with the answers because i do think that the facts should dictate the right solution and if in fact uh the facts show that um plenty of people did winterize, and I think there were a number of providers that testified to the fact that they did, and the numbers actually show that um, their outage rates were markedly better. Um, I would say I've been looking at that and noted with interest that uh, some of our large players in the competitive power market had pretty well winterized their plants so that they could stay online. We have a very strong incentive to stay online because our our power market is allowed to go up to a very uh for the US a very high price cap so you've got a very strong incentive to stay online to earn that money uh selling power at at the time of desperation but you also have a pretty strong disincentive to be offline cuz then if your customers need that power you've got to go pay that price to somebody else so that uh, that that market incentive was one that people have kind of looked at. Oh, it's that market design of Texas. I said, you know, I'd probably be the first to admit it if it were wrong because I helped design it. <laughs> but uh, I'd I'd have to say, based on the numbers I've seen so far, the folks that have to compete in the market who don't have rate based protection for their power plants did a pretty decent job. But they weren't flawless by any means. Um, you'd be expected in the scenario planning, which I think is another issue. The scenario planning we didn't assume something that this would be the extreme case our extreme case assumed that we'd hit uh peak peak day ercot load of 68 gigawatts which is compares to 75 for our hottest ever summer our hot summer peak was 75 gigawatts but we were expecting the winter to be 68
0: mm-hmm. well
2: before we end up having to cut power that that morning of presidents day we were looking at a 75 gigawatt day on the day of President's Day, which is higher than our summer peak has ever been. So that scenario planning is a good example of things. We've got to do scenario planning for a lot more extreme uh, conditions than we have to date. And, you know, the the folks can say that's the climate changing. That's fine. I probably would agree with that. But, you know, whatever the whatever you do it, uh, I don't care what you call it. Uh, do the damn scenarios right and assume the worst. Um, we, found, we saw this, uh, these black swans that everybody calls them are starting to look pretty gray. Um, everybody, yeah. They're showing up a little more often than a uh, hundred years. Um, you know, I lived through three hurricanes since I moved to Houston and a drought and now two winter storms. Um, my whole life growing up two hours east of here is, was pretty mild in comparison. Um, the 1989 certainly is okay. one we all remember. And uh, 1979 was another tough year, but in the winter, and of course, summers are varying, but we're kind of used to the summer being hot down here. But uh, anyway, I just think the scenario planning is a big one that I think is on everybody's
1: punch list going forward. Can we drill down a little on the market cap issue? Because I think that's an interesting one, because I mean, what you're basically saying is, hey, we, we need to do a better job weatherizing. Weatherizing is going to cost some money, but there's enough incentive built in this system with the $9,000 energy market offer cap and you know this, this notion that you know, you got to replace the power and that's a big incentive to, to be available. But I have to suspect, and please tell me if I'm wrong, that there's going to be pressure and a lot of conversation about that energy market offer cap being at such a high level because you know, of all the consequences that flow from it in this case. How how does that play out over the next year and a half? And you know, do we do we retain a market in Texas where where that is the incentive for weatherization, or do you see something changing or being added to the mix? That's a question I I was thinking about. I think about every day, Gwen,
2: because it is important to get the design right. And we did do one that's different than you've got up in the east, and it's different than what California has. I think much like California, in fact, probably ahead of them, Texas will be moving to the low carbon power grid faster than anybody in the country, maybe in the world, just because of the the wealth of resources we have here in wind and solar. Uh, We've got a lot blowing above the ground, just like we've had a lot from below the ground for the last century that we took out and we're able to monetize and give good jobs and keep good cheap power around here for. So we'll continue to do that, but it's going to be a different type of power grid. Um, we're already experiencing that with uh, the wind and solar coming in such large amounts. So that that 75 number I gave you before, by comparison, we've got about 30 to 32 of that at peak would be uh renewable and so we've got mostly wind and then solar's coming in in a a major way right now significantly and um you know so it's moving really quick so we've got to figure out a design that not that allows for as much low carbon energy to come in as as we can to obviously address the carbon and the pollution issues but on those bad days we got to make sure these guys the, the coal plants and the gas plants are still around and you know, there's two aspects of that. One is the technology to allow that to be low carbon. So I wasn't always a big fan of carbon capture and sequestration, but honestly, because our friends in Mississippi Power did such a poor job with that Kemper plant that I thought, well, that's not going to work. But plenty of people here in Houston have, you know, certainly in the chemical industry said, look, that can be done. It's a chemistry reaction that we're talking about here is removing carbon from plants. So you, so there's, we've got to save those plants, but we've got to also make them low carbon. And then on the other hand, we've got to make sure that they can be in the market. I really want to make sure that we can keep those power plants in the marketplace and allow them to continue to, to supply for the peak winters now. We've got to plan for both. So I think that market design could Include a capacity component, Glenn, like we have in PJM. But honestly, we had a hundred gigawatts of of nameplate capacity on the grid uh, on that cold day. So, Glenn, I'm, I'm thinking about the the capacity market issue, like like we have in PJM, where you you basically pay prepay for your insurance premium three years out to make sure you've got hardware on the ground to meet the needs in these peak days, um, I would say, you know, we've got a hundred gigawatts of capacity on the ground in ERCOT today, which is well above where we've ever used it. But we also recognize that some of that, particularly in the case of wind in the dead of winter, we just don't have much wind blowing in a normal year and it didn't happen this year either. So we assume that that's not going to be here. We also assume in that extreme case that I mentioned that, uh, the uh, there will be some outages of plants for a number of reasons due to weather or what have you. But what happened here was this was a factor like 2x greater than that. As we did, we had outages that were closer to 40,000 as opposed to 15. So that really brought the system to the to the brink and required the grid operator, who I call the air traffic controller when I'm explaining what ERCOT and PGM and all these wonderful institutions do. They're the air traffic controller. They don't, they don't make the planes. They don't charge the prices for the tickets. They just make sure everything takes off and lands on time and safely. So that's what they had to do in the middle of the day when in the middle of the night when um, the, the power plants froze up or quit performing or dropped offline for whatever reason, which again, we're analyzing as, as we speak that they had to make demand and supply come into balance because that's really the, their core function in life is to keep the frequency at 60 Hertz. And so when they couldn't do that, then they had to ask uh, the utilities that serve people to drop the load. And so that's what, uh, that's what happened. Um, and the capacity market probably wouldn't have made a difference here that day. But looking forward, I think we do have to have a different conversation about, uh, okay, maybe it wouldn't have mattered for uh, President's Day of 2021, but President's Day of 2031, what kind of resources are we going to have in Texas to be able to meet what will obviously be a growing, a, a bigger number of users by then? Because we're going to be electrifying cars and we're going to be electrifying probably more, more heat and more more processes that now are run by natural gas so we're going to electrify this and that and and have more people moving here because they you know like living here like I do and um, so we're going to have to deal with that in 2031 by getting uh, at least the resources we have today that is cost effective and clean Uh, that's a big challenge but it's also a big opportunity for the creative People and the entrepreneurs and the innovators, which is what we created our open system to really encourage.
1: Right. Yeah, I had a chance to review your congressional testimony last week, and you had a really interesting chart in there um, about the resources in Texas, their nameplate capacity versus I forget what the term of art is in Texas, the winter availability number, yes. or am I close? Right. And yeah, and I mean, okay, winter dependability number, and you know, the the nameplate for coal, nuclear, and gas were pretty close to what they're The winter dependability number was, but the drop off on wind and solar was pretty dramatic, um, you know, from a planning standpoint. So, you know, I think you raised a really good point, particularly as electrification increases. And the other interesting thing you had in your testimony was I think Texas was at maybe 7% electric heat in 1970 and is now at two-thirds of the homes by electric yeah. heat. Am I right yeah. about that? Am I remembering that correctly?
0: Yeah. yeah
1: so, I mean, as we move to this greater electrification, there's going to be, and, and we have more and more resources that sort of, you know, have that gap between name k- plate capacity and winter dependability. That's something market design has to address, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, you've got to you've got to really look at it as de- dependable cap- capa- capacity. That's really the, the number you got to work from, and that's where right. And, and 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 ERCOT does. I mean, they do. They the their extreme scenario was based on that, but the extreme scenario also assumed that we wouldn't we would have fifty one thousand megawatts of gas, not twenty seven. So that was a that that, that right. was a difference. They assumed we'd have you know wind of seven thousand, we had three. They'd assume we had coal of thirteen thousand and we had eight. Um they didn't yeah. assume that a nuclear plant would drop. We have four units here in the state. So one of them dropped for about six hours, but then got back on. So, you know, that's probably the most of all of them, the dependable one that you really assume is gonna be there. So it hit everything, really did.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. So, all right. You mentioned that it hit everything, but I once heard you describe your regulatory philosophy succinctly as, and I quote here, I'm a big, passionate defender of competition, but boy, I'm ruthless against people who want to F it up. So who in this world deserves the fury of Pat Wood related to the recent events?
2: Well, other than uh, the woman whose first name is Mother and second name is Nature, who I really can't do much about because um, she's pretty damn powerful, um, <laughs> I would I, the only the one I haven't mentioned. Uh, I, mean, I mentioned the weatherization, the planning, the the communications were poor. I mean, getting the getting people ready for that. I mean, we we planned for a hurricane a week out. I mean, you are, you hear about a hurricane coming into the Gulf Coast? Everybody goes to the grocery store. It's not like this huge rush, but the grocery stores stock up. Everybody gets gas in their car. You kind of do all these things to prepare for it. But I would say most people were not aware by um, you know the weekend of Valentine's Day that this was this was around the corner. And it it uh, so the communication issues are. Were, were poor. And I would say then the, the other issue that was the most customer affecting and this one that's being unpacked right now is the local utilities who are still regulated in our competitive environment, the local utilities management of the outage process. So when they get, they're the ones that got the orders from the air traffic controller at ERCOT to, to cut back the, d- the demand as quickly as possible. And so they just dropped feeders. And then unfortunately, rather than rotate those feeders to where you'd be on for four hours, off for four hours or some shorter period perhaps, I was off for 36. And uh, friends in Austin were off for 75 75 hours. So um, because they were on feeders and and because so much is designated as a critical load. So when you have a hospital or a jail, for example, you don't cut, the, the, the utilities know that is, sacred we have at the that's the last thing we would cut off before the market before the state went black would Mm -hmm. be the hospitals and the jails and and those critical facilities like that and so the problem is that our our networks are designed such that you can't just surgically cut off everybody else but the hospital everybody who's near the hospital their lights stay on too and so that takes a lot of a lot of optionality away from the utility to be able to manage a more surgical or more granular ability to roll those outages. Like they have in California managed it. Um, They've had to roll outages here with this wildfire uh, the past several seasons, the wildfires that are hitting their transmission and distribution utilities. So, you know, they've got this grant. They know who's where. I think one thing we found out is some of the critical facilities in the natural gas industry were on outage. So they were cut off at the time when you need them the most. Right. So that, that's that's an issue which we ha- I hadn't had really mentioned y'all, but the gas electric interface in Texas is so important. We get the majority of our power um, as we have for decades from natural gas. And it's a great resource that we sit on top of a lot of here. We have a lot of pipelines moving it around, but those pipelines are becoming and their processing facilities and the wellheads themselves are all increasingly... Uh, powered by electricity and so if you were doing rolling outages of the electricity grid you can't turn those gas plants off um because they're. it's going to become a bit of a death spiral down so we did i think we had some of that going on as well i mean i even heard about um a separate one where a water main in a large city in texas burst and so you've got to have water to run a natural gas fired plant to cool the cool the engine so it won't burn up so when the water main burst because it's so cold, I mean, what do you do about that? I mean, that, uh, that's one of those things of the bigger question is do you how much do you spend to prepare for right. something that's gonna mm-hmm. be relatively seldom, you hope? Right. It's still
0: one of those, yeah black swan events. Well, uh, Pat, this isn't a perfect segue, but I think it's a burning question. I think a lot of people would be interested to hear your perspective on should Texas, should it interconnect with neighboring grids and should FERC have jurisdiction over ERCOT?
2: Well, I was asked this last week in Congress, and I think we've got about a, a thousand megawatts of connectivity to the outside world. Again, that's out of about 80 uh, that we need on a on a key day. So Yes, I think some more interconnections to the outside world would have been a little bit of a help, but to offset 25,000 m- missing megawatts of just gas, not to mention the others, it, it, it would have not kept the lights on. Um, of more interconnections would be fine. We can do those without changing uh, jurisdiction of ERCOT vis a vis the federal government. Uh, and I would say, as the regulator, and probably the only, I I think the only human who's been head of both the PUC and FERC is that there's not, both sides aren't so bad. I mean, there's not so much that would be bad. However, I do like that as a regulator in ERCOT, we were able to set up our integrated vision of how to move to a competitive market in a, in a, in a, really comprehensive way. We, we put, and that's why I think the Texas market has been so successful is that we really had a unified vision of what we wanted at wholesale and how it should play out at retail. So we, we were able to do that. And were Texas just another grid that was part of the Eastern interconnection, for example, we would have to you know, negotiate with Louisiana and Arkansas and Oklahoma, who all have different local retail market structures, about how to do that and having to to do the things that I was blessed to work with Glenn Thomas and all the great regulators in the mid-Atlantic region when we did PJM, that can be done and it can be done successfully. It's just harder. Um, Texas did give, the Texas legislature did give the PUC pretty clear authority over everything we needed to do in ERCOT to make the competitive market work. FERC, by contrast, does not have that clear authority from the Congress. It should, and we obviously have asked for it. But to really make it all work, um, you do have a lot more balance between states and feds um, in the multi-state grids that we have that make that harder to do. So uh, Texas would be losing a lot from where we are today um, because we are, you know, you know, very strongly pro-competitive, um, you know, minimize the amount of regulated assets that we uh, have to, you know, have government regulate the rates for and the practices for. So I think we'd be giving up a lot. I would hate to do it. And, I, you know, I think I'd be honest enough to admit if that would have helped here, but it would have been at the margin of some help to get power, for example, from the West, which wasn't getting as cold. But, you know that cold weather that hit us on Monday hit Louisiana and Arkansas on Tuesday and Wednesday, so they were you know not able to send power even over the limited interconnections that we had. So um, that's you know that's yeah. kind of the end of it.
0: If you had to consider all of the factors, what would you put the odds at of or interconnecting with one of the larger interconnections and in ERCOT going under for federal jurisdiction?
2: Less than ten percent. Okay. I think you'll, I think we will have um, some of the, and there actually is a pending proposal right now called the Southern Cross, I believe, that uh, was a two gigawatt connection at, on the east and on the west that um, Pattern Energy had proposed a few years ago in Texas and had gotten the FERC approval that, hey, that's fine. You connect it with a direct current tie, a DC tie. That won't change jurisdiction for FERC mm-hmm. uh, in Texas. So y'all can go ahead and that's fine. And uh, the PUC said yes as well. But the mm-hmm. the sponsors, I think the economics weren't quite there. Um, but uh, we probably ought to think about how to do that because we ought to make sure that for reliability purposes, we ought to encourage more interconnections to the West and to the East. We have some to Mexico as well. And those were all fully utilized during the crisis. But then the cold uh, weather went, south of the border, went to Mexico, and they said, wait, we need that power back. Yeah. So, you know, they, they help at the margin, to be sure, but uh, as far as a comprehensive solution, that would have been the silver bullet. Um, there is no real silver bullet here. There's a mul- There's multiple bronze bullets, and that could be one of them.
0: I think there's another one like that, if I'm not mistaken, called Trace Amigas that's on yes. the the New Mexico side. So you're suggesting that there should be strong reconsideration for those projects. Absolutely.
2: And yeah, I had yeah. the pleasure to talk to our old friend, Phil Harris, who was uh-huh. the CEO yep. of PJM back in the good old days. And he called me just to check on my karma as a good friend would. And he and I talked about, man, I I said, it wouldn't have kept all the lights on, but it would have been nice to have had Trace Amigas Mm -hmm. up there moving stuff in and out when uh, it wasn't so cold in New Mexico compared to what we had here in the panhandle.
1: Yeah, that's great. All right, uh, so Pat, you mentioned competitive markets and the move in Texas to restructure. Uh, We obviously up here in Pennsylvania went through similar conversations about 25 years ago. Um, As you mentioned, Pennsylvania was in a state with 12 other states in the District of Columbia. So there was a lot of communications going back and forth across the borders trying to get the market right, whereas Texas um, basically had to work it out internally and within the state borders. Um, but there was a lot of communications between Texas and Pennsylvania. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with UPA and with Becky Klein and with Paul Hudson and folks like that. Uh, Barry Smitherman, Rob Powelson were very close and spent a lot of time communicating. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, both states... Uh, in my mind at least, have had you know, very successful adventures into um, to competition. The Wall Street Journal recently put out a couple of articles questioning the value of competitive markets. Um, it's been a quarter of a century since we made these moves. Uh, in light of everything that's happened in Texas, including the recent events, um, do you still believe competitive markets are in the best interest of Texas?
2: Glenn, I believe that they're in the best interest of this whole country. Um, and I'm, I, my biggest regret is that we didn't get at least the, the piece that FERC could do, uh, which was wholesale markets, over the whole country. We did get two thirds of the country, so that's probably a C minus. But uh, I do think that, that the importance of recognizing that generation is a competitive entity and ought to be put into a competitive environment to perform is critical. And I think one of the things we're, I'm starting to see, and I'll, I will keep my powder a little drier for the ultimate number, but it looks like the power plants that were owned by competitive entities performed better than power plants that were owned by municipalities and cooperatives who do have captive customer rate base still here in Texas. That's an interesting finding. Another interesting finding is the retail competition finding, which is you and I took our states not only through wholesale competition, but all the way to where individual customers could shop around for their power prices. And you know, the shoddy research of the Wall Street Journal notwithstanding, you know, people in Texas know that their rates are better than they were under comp- on the regulated environment 20 years ago. You know, We've gone from 21st most expensive state in the nation to 43rd. Um, our power prices and and peer-reviewed research that looks at this issue have clearly validated that customers are better off uh, in this competitive environment. So I'm, I'm, again, probably going to cancel my subscription to the Wall Street Journal over not one, but two drive-by shootings with uh, really surprisingly shoddy reporting. But you know, we'll get the facts out there. But at the end of the day, the people who are are living in this world in Texas that have to pay the bills, it's not customers who had fixed contracts with the competitive supplier, the 7 million who have fixed price contracts for, you know, whatever, three months up to five years, whatever contract you want to buy and whatever rate you want to pay and whatever form of greenness you want to do. I happen to have one that's uh, called free nights. And so I'm disincented to conserve consume power during the day but from 9 p.m. to 6 a.m. I can, you know, have it for free. So that's when I charge the car and run the pool pump and, you know, tell Kathleen to run the dish run the dishwasher after 9 p.m. and you know all the stuff that uses electricity. So you've got all these power plans out there. We are not going to be paying the 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 big markup for uh power that was purchased during that transition of the presence day week, that very expensive week. But if I were at a regulated utility who is used to just in the old days, I regulated these guys. So I know them. am you just look at all your costs and you pass them through and you might pass them through in one year, you might pass them through in five years, but you pass them through in a regulated utility. Um, that's what's happening on the natural gas side. We don't have competitive choice in natural gas. And it's already been in the paper that we're, uh, we're just basically hunker down. We're going to get these big bills for all these spot purchases of natural gas because a utility doesn't have the incentive to hedge like a competitive environment. Now, if you're wearing the risk, um, you know, retailer A is wearing the risk of, uh, of serving me and, and millions of other people in this state for the next year or two or three or however long they have my contract. They're going to get financial hedges and they're going to get physical hedges and they're going to use their own power plants and they're going to, you know, lock up other people's power plants and use storage and all these other uh, technologies to manage the risk. They know how to manage the risk. I don't, but they do. And so um, having the choice of those people, I get to pick the best manager of risk uh, from among 34 companies I think when I last looked uh, what I could have had uh, serve me so that is a that's a big victory of moving to competition independent of just Texas but the Texas thing will show that is that take the risk off the back of the captive ratepayer that's what they used to call people now I'm a customer and I can shop around and if you can't manage the risk in a way that I think is appropriate i.e. you charge me too much or um, you go out of business then i go to somebody else so that's what happens and if you go to a grocery store and they they don't treat you right or you go to a gas uh, gasoline station and you know whatever reason you don't like how they how that's uh, priced or, or how you're served those important commodities just like electricity you can go somewhere else well in most parts of the country you still can't go shop around for electricity or gas, or water, but uh, yet that discipline needs to be in the system. And with a competitive environment where there's the pressure every day of competing against another retailer for that person's business, as opposed to just being able to pass it through as a regulated entity by somebody reviewing your costs once every three or four years, I I think the public's a whole lot better served by that day-to-day give and take in the market rather than trusting the government bureaucrat, like what Glenn and I used to be to make a wise call on these things every four years.
1: I couldn't agree more. And as Rory said at the outset, you know, he introduced me as a man of dubious skills and that certainly was one of them, <laughs> you know, but, 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 you're absolutely right, Pat. And I, I, I'll never forget. I got, this was maybe a year or two after we made the move to restructuring in Pennsylvania and I got a visit from the CEO of one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, electric utilities in the state at the time. And he said, "You know, Glenn, the second that that bill passed, meaning the restructuring act, and this was back in 1996, and the, you know, and after we got our stranded cost recovery, which is a whole nother conversation, he said the internal conversations changed dramatically from what can we get away with from our regulators to how do we become better, smarter." more efficient for our consumers. And that just struck with me, right? Um, yeah. How it you know char- changed the pivot in the mindset of, like I said, one of the captains of industry at the time. And I think that, that lesson holds true today to your points.
0: Well, let, let's pivot slightly on that topic. FERC is scheduled to have a big technical conference at the end of the month on capacity markets. Texas does not have a capacity market. Most of America's organized markets do. How should FERC be thinking about capacity markets in light of the Texas events? Well, as I mentioned,
2: I don't think the capacity market would have made a difference in this winter event for us. the The question, uh, the longer term question, though, is what is the best construct for a you know the 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 world ten years from now, whether that's in Texas or across the nation. How do we keep uh, the 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 hard re- assets on the on the grid that enable them to serve at these peak period days, but also enable a lot of low cost, in fact zero variable costs, um, clean energy to come and serve the rest of the system. So that's one that I definitely want to want to think about. Um, but I don't know that uh, one size fits all. I mean certainly. Texas moved pretty as, uh, aggressively without a capacity market. We got a lot of market entry, a lot of investment here from uh, in the early days, gas, in the later days, wind and solar, as those become the most low-cost uh, resources. That's what a market enti- uh, welcomes in, are the guys who can do it cheaper, better, faster. And so uh, the unique nature of though is that these are variable resources. And so you've got to have something there to, to firm them up. So the, the increase of, of storage and the more prominent availability of cheaper, uh, more f- uh, effective storage, which is what I do for my day job by, by comparison is, is really enabling those variable resources to become a lot more valuable. And so I like the fact that I'm helping to enable the greening of our grid, but uh, you know, as a as a as a long term natural gas guy, I also got to say I can't imagine, uh, particularly after what I lived through last month, I can't imagine that a quote green grid close quote does not have substantial amounts of gas. And you know, to the extent we can decarbonize it and coal, uh, coal on the grid as well. I mean, you can't just have the nukes be the only uh, firm base load that's there on that cold morning that we had on president's day. We're going to need a lot more than that. And so figuring out a way to clean up gas and coal is task number one. And then task number two is making sure that the gas and coal as well as nuclear, wind and solar, and then in your, in your state hydro, we don't have so much of that here and maybe geothermal. Um, I, certainly we've got a lot of holes punched in the ground in both of our states sure. uh, yeah. from historical oil production. Uh, what can we do uh, to make good good utilization of that? Um, I know California's had pretty successful uh, geothermal, uh, not a lot, but certainly it's shown it can be done. It can be done at at the scale and can be done economically. So add that one to the mix. But I do think um, we've got to be smart enough to know to evolve to something different. I think a capacity market construct was 20th century Uh, It was intended to kind of make up for the fact y'all didn't have really vibrant retail power markets at the time. And you had to make sure you didn't have um, freeloaders that that basically rode off the back of people who were buying, who were paying for power plants to be here three or four years from now. Um, So you had to, you had to institutionalize that to make sure that the retailers really had an incentive. I would say every retailer in Texas, at least the ones that uh, survived last month and some will go bankrupt. Um, they're going to be thinking pretty long and hard about how do they uh, how do they hedge their long-term investment in uh, dependable firm capacity and that they may not need to be told you have to have a capacity market because the incentives are pretty darn strong that those that didn't basically went under so uh, I'm open to that uh, I've actually endorsed Texas doing the capacity market back in 20 20- 13, I suppose, when Governor Perry asked me about it. And I uh, said, I'm not crazy about it, but the trade off's not that big of a one to make. I, I'd do it in a heartbeat to keep the rest of the gains that we've gotten in this market. Uh, and so I'm not morally opposed to it. I, I do think it is a regulatory uh, artifice that I would rather not have as we're moving to what should be a simpler, more open market. But on the other hand, last month show me it's too valuable of a commodity to just treat it like it's a you know peanut butter or milk. I mean it is really core to our way of life, and mm-hmm. um, uh, market forces can be marshalled to make that effective and innovative and uh, efficient uh, and all the great things that we like. But at the end of the day, it is a very public interest oriented resource and uh, we've got to be creative to make sure that we, we've got it here for the long haul.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's not a lot of people getting yanked before the legislature for multiple hearings that last hour long hours long because we're out of peanut butter during a crisis, right? <laughs> um, that's for sure.
0: Now for the segment of our show where we just like to fire questions at you so fast that you can only respond with the first thing that comes to mind. Which job did you enjoy more? federal
2: or state regulator uh state i got to be on offense for six straight years and set up a wholesale and retail market that uh, i'm very proud of so it's uh more fun to be on offense and defense which federal was defense with california and enron and the blackout but uh you know in both of them we had some awesome people and good hard workers and that's
1: uh it's a fun industry to be in either place to be honest yeah, no, that's for sure. And, and you did get a lot of interesting things thrown at you while you were chairman of FERC, that's for sure. Some of which you knew when you took the job, by the way. So I can't let you totally off the hook, <laughs> at least on the California situation. Um, but, you know, is there any particular voter action you took while you were a FERC that you're particularly proud of? Or is there one that you'd like a do over on?
2: Well, I think the one I'm most proud of is uh, our, our hard work to really do the, the the deep thinking on what is the best market design for power markets for the country. We put that in a, in a regulation called the standard market design, which unfortunately, due to political blowback, did not get fully implemented. But like I said earlier, about two-thirds of the nation did get that done, and, and I'm including ERCOT under that because I borrowed a lot of the lessons that we learned down here in Texas, as well as what... We learned in PJM and New York and what we learned the hard way in California and what we've studied from overseas in Australia and the UK and South America that have been successful. But so I like that the most. I think if my do over, Glenn, would be um I really look back, I wished I'd have done that transco vote really early on in the Midwest. There were a number of utilities that were were willing to put their transmission into a uh a single standalone company and run it as a for-profit transco. And I do look back and think maybe we should have done that rather than keep that all together under PJM and under MISO. We could have had PJM and MISO operate the markets on top of that. But I do think uh, right. getting, the, getting the transmission apart from the regulated utilities would have been a, a major step in the right direction. It'd
1: be interesting to think what the world would look like today had that vote happened. So yeah. Maybe that's a subject for future podcasts. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, all right. Uh, based on your earlier comments, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this one, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Gig'em, hook'em, sick'em, wreck'em, or something else?
2: Oh, gig'em, Aggies,
1: all the way. I'm, all right. I'm, all right. I figured. No doubt about that. So, well, I had planned to ask you right now, Pat, whether you thought the world would be a better place had st- standard market design happened, but I think we know that answer. So I'm going to I'm going to pivot here and throw one at you. So you did a singular thing as chairman of the commission that helped fight terrorism, (laughs) uh, halt the spread of infectious diseases, led to the development of Siri as well as Google's predictive text or whatever they call that feature. So this tremendous singular thing you did as chairman of the FERC, very few people probably appreciate or recognize. So in 60 seconds or less, describe how this one thing you did as chairman um, which also might have wrecked a few marriages along the way too, <laughs> made the world a better place.
2: <laughs> so in the context of investigating the fall of Enron, we uh, we sought and acquired the full corpus of all their email chatter of the top 180 people in the corporation for a year and a half. And so we searched that and actually found some indications of uh, that led to our prosecution on market manipulation, what have you, but the uh, the the Democrats in Congress were unhappy that we didn't find more, and at the end of all of our proceedings, when they finally were done, and we finished our our cleanup work, I just, they, they pushed and pushed, I just said, hell, put it all out there, so we dropped the entire corpus of the Enron Corporation's uh, email traffic for a year and a half, and it became uh, a real life of its own that I didn't hear about until about a year ago when a reporter called me and said, Are you aware that the Enron corpus, as it's called, has become this snapshot of life in America, you know, circa 1999, that really has been the basis for Siri, for predictive text, for uh, uh, corporate? interactions for, you know, Rorschach tests for personality types and all this stuff. I'm like, what? And he said, yeah, do you remember doing that? I said, well, babe, barely. So I called, I've called a friend of a friend and I've remembered who the attorney was that worked on it. She gave me the full refresh on why we did that. But it was a fascinating um, story that, you know, you think that the things you do on the front line are the, what's going to matter the most, but it's those little decisions that you make sometime in a, Act of just despair or or just frustration that end up being the ones that uh, change the world. So who knows?
1: Yeah, no, it's a really fascinating story, and to think that universities around the world are still using that data uh, for various analytical purposes, it's it's absolutely fascinating. And it it is true. I mean, it has been used to fight terrorism and infectious diseases. It's it's an amazing story. So. Uh, good job, Mr. Chairman. Way to go.
2: You know, it's funny, Glenn, it, the, our views of privacy are so different now than they were in, I think that was '02 02 or 2003 when I signed that order and the other commissioners all agreed, you know, the the deep the, the protections of personal privacy that have come about in those 20 years are significant changes. And so we're, I, I doubt I would do that today. I mean, we did scrub people's addresses and social security numbers and phone numbers from all of that. But um, almost kind of after the fact, but we, we did think, oh, we got to do that. But, you know, just thinking through the privacy implications of, you know, someone's email, you know, talking to, you know, a, you know, a, a man talking to a woman across the office about having a liaison after work. It's like, well, mm-hmm. gosh, I don't know that yeah. the world needs to know that. I think that's some level of privacy is important. <laughs> and I and who am I to decide that? But, you know, at the time, we just weren't as sensitized to that.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a really intriguing story. And since we're on a podcast here, we'll throw a little shout out that was all discussed in a separate podcast, Business Insider. We will put a link with our show notes so that everyone else who wants to see more about that and and hear some more podcasts with Pat can go find it. But let me ask you this. Are you more of a George Strait, Waylon Jennings, country music kind of guy or like a Towns Van Zandt, Gary Clark Jr. blues folk kind of guy? And what's your favorite honky tonk? So that's
2: a toughie for a Texan. <laughs> I'm i kind of glitz. I kind of grew up in the Kenny Rogers, George Strait, Barbara Mandrell era. So I'm going to go with the uh, George Strait way on okay. Kenny. Yeah. Okay. And favorite okay. honky tonk. If, if any Texan says anything other than Green Hall, we have to. Yell oh,
0: ah, perfect. Yeah. I, I was thinking about asking about that specifically, but I thought maybe he'll just say it anyway. So I don't even yeah. have to. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. There you go. A true Texan. All right. One of my favorite questions that we asked on Rapid Fire, who do you consider a role model or mentor in this business? Oh, in this business.
2: I thought you're going to ask me in my life. Well, in my <laughs> life, I would say my dad. i, I I love my dad. He died about six years ago this month and think about him all the time. But uh, in this business, I really thought very highly of John Rowe of Exelon, who I know y'all know there in in Pennsylvania. He and I got to know each other back when I was a brand new commissioner at the Texas Commission. And he was so, so well read and so thoughtful and so informed and so open minded. And I, I love that, uh, you know, in a relatively conservative industry like this, that there would be such a renaissance person there to really talk things through and would not agree with me to be nice. He would actually own, you know, nuclear power. He was strong for it. And I was kind of questioning, you know, whether that had long term viability. And so we'd go back and forth. But, I you know, I really uh, liked and respected him a lot.
1: Well, when we had Commissioner Lafleur on the podcast, she cited John Rowe as a role and mentor as well. So well, how, um, well, he is he is company. too there.
0: All right, final question in rapid fire. You you mentioned earlier sort of the uh, the barbecue bowl that you went to between A and M and UNC best barbecue so i love franklin's in
2: austin it's the one you got to wait in a damn long line for so <laughs> it's hard my, my favorite one growing up is no longer there which is the brisket room in port arthur texas ah. started by a cajun and he sold it to a korean and it was just the best damn barbecue and then here in houston you know we've got a number of different ones that i would say are all bb plus pit room Papa's Barbecue, The Good Company. They're all all good. I I pretty much, I've tried, I I even like the one in the Dallas Love Airport. its um, I've been to that one. Yeah, that's probably my, as far as just fast and quick, I I, I go get a a half pound chopped, uh, a half pound of sliced brisket right there, nothing, just sauce and brisket. Just eat it up. Get on the plane. I'm sure my breath smells just
0: like (laughs) you can smell me across the room, but I don't care. So so let me just be clear on this. You really think Franklin's is the best? That one, that one's considered to be really a top one. I do think
2: there's some okay. good ones. There are other good ones in Central Texas, the Elgin Smokehouse, and down in Lockhart as well. Ah, there you go. Um, that kind of where the Germans settled in in 1850s were really kind of the where your barbecues the strongest. So that kind of Schulenburg kind of just the, if, you know, if you kind of look at Austin and then kind of go about a two hour radius out of there, you get a really pop of good. Places the In Lano, Texas is another good one right mm-hmm. over the river that I love. And oh gosh, I love barbecue. That's my that's my last meal, by the way. <laughs> barbecue and a good Cuban cigar—that would be it. If I had about six hours to know, I had that's all I had left. That's where I'd go, man. <laughs> I love it. That's great. And Rory can bring the
1: bagpipes.
0: I was gonna say uh, so this is a great episode. We've got some last requests going on. Perfect. <laughs> all right, now it's time for. Probably our favorite section of the show in which we offer unsolicited advice to anyone whom we think needs it. You have two minutes to level one-on-one with anyone, anywhere on anything you think he or she needs to hear. Pat, who are you going with? I think I'm going to go with everybody who testified before the Texas
2: legislature last month. Okay. I mean, that, that would be, those were people who were in positions of authority. Sure both on the government side and in the industry and as, as customers in the power uh, crisis we just went through. And it's what I told my children last night at dinner when we were all together and up in uh, College Station, Texas, for a birthday. I said the most important thing you can do in your life is do your job. Just know what it is that you need to do and do it. And do it well, but don't make excuses. Don't think of what you want to do next. Do the job you're in. You have a job to do, utility. You have a job to do, dear sweet son. Do that job and do it well.
1: And then that's
0: how things in the country work. I think that's great advice. I yeah, try to give myself that advice on a regular basis I
1: <laughs> It's funny. We we did a Nayruk training session a couple of years ago, on, you know. How to, you know, how to, how to be a regulator, but then become a former regulator. And the advice I gave to every single regulator in that room was: be the best damn regulator you can while you're being a regulator, and the after the post-regulatory world will will take care of that. And you know, Pat Wood is certainly a terrific example of that. So, um, you know, I'm actually gonna give Pat a second bite of the apple, Rory, if I can, and and forego my two minutes of advice and see if Pat has any. Specific advice for the incoming chair, whoever that may be, of the Public Utility Commission of Texas. I mean, obviously, there's actually two two vacancies on the commission right now. If you were walking into that job and had two minutes of advice, given everything that's happened, what would you say to that that person? I would say
2: to the incoming uh, commissioners at the PUC, first of all, know what your job is and do it and do all of it. And if you need more resources, obviously ask the legislature for that as I had to do when I got to FERC in 2001 and I needed people to help investigate and and sustain competitive market oversight. But this is a really unique period similar to the one I had in 1995, which is when the world is pivoting to a new paradigm. And uh, to keep Texas in the leadership chair We've got to be creative, we've got to be innovative, we've got to go back to our roots and not just kind of keep on doing what's the check the box thing, but think outside the box. And that box is one that is the low carbon future that we're all moving to as a country and a world. Kind of independent of the politics, that's where it's going. Like wind and solar or low cost resources, with or without subsidy they're going to come into all of our markets and we've got to get good at integrating those and get it using them because our, our our population our citizens our fellow texans our fellow americans depend on us getting it right they count on us to to have the expertise and i think if there's the thing i felt most wounded about in the past month is is that i've felt like i've let my fellow texans down because i helped set this up and i take ownership for it and yet you know there were balls that were dropped, and I I I, I regret that, and I'm, I'm I lose sleep over that because I you know I passed the keys on to somebody, and you know we dropped the ball. But you know it's always going to be part of me. It's always going to be part of all of us who have contributed to building up uh, the power system. Uh, over the past century. It is a true miracle of modern nature. And I think was it was right, the North American power grid was uh, indicated as the top invention of the 20th century by the American Society of Civil Engineers, for example. So what we've got here is a precious thing. And it is our it is our stewardship responsibility to carry that forward. And again, I think because Texas, due to the blessing of resources, is where that's going to all happen first, if not, well, probably first, is we've got a chance to to lead, to get the innovation, to get the investment here, to get the creative entrepreneurs here that come in here and think outside the box about how to make energy work for the customer. And let's do that. Um, that's It's not just uh, answer the legislature's call and set the rates for the utility. It's you're putting the vision out there for the next generation or two of Texans and of Americans. And isn't that an awesome job, but it's also an awesome responsibility. So know that walking in.
0: All right. So we're going to rumble straight to the finish here. Pat, thank you so much for joining us today and putting the whole Texas situation into perspective. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? You know, Rory
2: and Glenn, thank you for doing what you do. I I love the, if there's ever one great upside from what's happened during COVID is we figured out new ways to communicate, to come together that don't require you to get on a plane and get dressed up and do all that, but just to sit and have just thoughtful conversations. And I I love learning from you guys and um, I love podcasts. I think that's a great gift that uh, we'll keep doing. And I love that you're, uh, that you included me. I feel (laughs) honored and I appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate it. How about you, Glenn? Any last thoughts?
1: Oh, thanks to Pat. It's always great to spend time with Pat Wood um look forward to doing it at a barbecue in texas sometime soon but uh yeah no it was a terrific hour and thanks thanks to our listeners as always
0: great well it's been another informative eh, probably going to be a little bit more than an hour for us this time thanks again to everybody for listening and until next time as always be excellent to each other thanks again for joining us for another episode of the gt power hour views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any gt power group client for more information please visit www.gtpowergroup.com that's gt powergrou thanks again and we'll see you next time